and welcome to CigarCast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Crown Cigars and Ales here in beautiful Brentwood, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Dubman. I'm joined by a man whose sizes for his next cigar are all going to be Go F Yourself, Mr. Shane Reeves. Okay, I don't get it. Okay. I, I thought you might not, but I was prepared with an explanation. Have you, uh, you ever, know if you explain the joke, the joke dies, but i got to know now. Um, have you ever followed the Iron Sheik oh, on yeah. Twitter? Oh, yeah. Okay. Every and so <laughs> This goes with my Iron Sheep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, over the weekend, Shane tells me that the next uh, cigar in the Venomous Duck line is going to be called the Iron Sheep. Well, so, of course, all I could think of was the, the obvious play on words. And I guess he was live tweeting WrestleMania this weekend, and everything was just go f yourself, go f yourself, go f yourself. <laughs> the thing about the thing about the Iron Sheik, he has a media crew that actually does that for him. These are not authentic, authentically his thoughts. Although I'm sure they're not far off. I remember when he first joined Twitter, he called everyone jabronis. Right. That was his big thing. Do you know the definition of a jabroni? I don't. So a jabroni. Quick wrestling lesson before I light this cigar. Um, a jabroni was the guys, they were enhancement talent. They were the guys that you'd pick up a local guy so that your big star could just beat somebody up and nobody would lose face. Used to. Nowadays, wrestling is booked. Literally every match is two names you know. Right. That wasn't always the way. Used to, in a wrestling show, you had the main event that would be two people you know, but the other six people on the car would be just wrestling jabronis. Ah. Local guys. So that's actually where the term jabroni comes from. Gotcha. I, I, I just remember it becoming popular when The Rock was, was using it. That was yeah. back in the era when I was watching. Yeah, he was honoring his, his um, wrestling history. I see. His oh. family's wrestling history and legacy and all. But yes, well, okay, before we get in, you've sidetracked me of wrestling. I've got to get this cigar lit just so I can get it smoked by the time it's time to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> That is that is the most tobacco I've seen in one cigar, I think, maybe ever. So Outside of that 12-foot-long Calabra they've got over there. Oh, yeah. Well, so it's interesting. This cigar I bought the first time we ever recorded at Big Boy's Cigars in Dixon. Okay. And it's been aging in my humidor since then. I bought two of them. This is a JFR Lunatic Maduro El Gran Loco. Five and a half by 80. So... We've been talking about these short, fat cigars, which I don't know that five and a half is necessarily short, but it's definitely a fat cigar. It's definitely a chode. Yeah, it's it's huge. So I've I've smoked one before and I liked it. Of course, I like JFR tobacco. Right. And so I thought I seen this in the humidor and I thought, you know, as many times as we've brought up the short, fat cigars, it's time for me to smoke one on the show. It's a Nicaraguan wrapper, binder and filler in Nicaraguans. The blender is Arsenio Ramos. And the manufacturer is Aganor Salif. All right. Top that. I bet you don't know the blender's name on your cigar. I don't know the blender's <laughs> name on my cigar. Are you running a podcast or what? <laughs> well, they don't release that information over at General. So I'm smoking a Punch Kung Pao. If you follow us on any of the social medias, then you would have seen about a week and a half ago or so. Um, I had one of these for the first time and thoroughly enjoyed it. This is a workhorse. This is a just a really surprisingly well-rounded, just solid offering from Punch's new line that they're doing around sort of 
uh, what would you call it? I, the Asian series? Fast food restaurant? Yeah. So <laughs> um, we've had the egg roll. Uh, I know you and I have both smoked that, I think. I haven't never smoked okay. egg roll. I smoked the egg roll, liked it, um, but it only comes in a Robusto, which is not really my wheelhouse. And then, so I tried this. The I feel like you that's too much to even call a shaggy foot. That's a, that's a full inch. That, yeah, that's a trying to save some wrapper leaf. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's a clean line. It's very well executed. Now, do you ruffle that up a little before you light it, or do you just light it the way I'm it a, is? I'm afraid not. So, <laughs> um, But it's a Honduran cigar, um, U.S. Connecticut broadleaf wrapper, Honduran binder, and fillers from Brazil, the Dominican, Honduras, and Mexico. Well, those remind me of Tatuajes. If you asked me prior to coming in here, who makes the Kumpau, who makes the egg roll, I'd have told you Tatuaje. Because it, does it kind of fit in their motif for you? Does that, or am I, am I hallucinating? I think you might be hallucinating a little bit. Uh, one thing they do... Um, hey, I'm smoking six pounds of tobacco. What do you mean I might be hallucinating? Um, one of the things they do uh, that I do like um, is the fact that all of the cigars in this series... So there's the uh, the egg roll, the kung pao, and there's also a chop suey, which is a seven by thirty-seven. I guess that's a Lonsdale. Um, it's one size. Eat each blend comes in one size only, and you know how big a fan I am of that. I can respect that. I can absolutely respect that that they that they've said, okay, this is the size this cigar is blended for. This is the size it's meant to be. Um, Public opinion be doggone, we're going to make it this size. What I'm waiting for is for them to release the number 10 combination. That's just one from each of the... Yeah, just... Was that, do you want fried rice of that? But, yeah, just an interesting... That would be a tiny... The fried rice will be like a, a petite Corona. <laughs> but all real buttery. I don't know. I'm not a big fan. I'm always bigger fan of the noodles than I am the fried rice. Mm. Fried rice is my go-to. And I'll, but I don't like peas. Peas are unnatural. Nothing should all be the same shape that's grown ag- agriculturally. I'm not a huge pea fan. What I so what I do. My favorite place to get Chinese takeout was right across the road here. They've since closed down. Is chicken fried rice, no vegetables. Just leave the peas out. Yeah. See, if I get, I'll no get a side of I'll get a side of green beans. That way, I'm still being healthy. But I don't need peas and carrots in my fried rice. You know, that's a lot of tobacco, and I don't say that often. That's a lot of tobacco in that lunatic, and all at 80 ring gauge. And you felt the weight of it. I should have weighed it on the little pipe tobacco scale before I lit it. That's a heavy cigar. It's kind of unwieldy, and all. And I imagine I'll end up sticking it with my pick before. You know, before I normally would stick a cigar. You know, like many cigars of that ring gauge, it tapers on both ends because you'd never be able to get a foot that's 80 ring gauge lit, but also just to make it easier to smoke. But the, the taper on that is short. I mean, there's oh, yeah. barely, it's a, it, and it only tapers to about, what do you, you have that cut at about a 54. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's full. It's a full, it's a mouthful of cigar, I'm here to tell you. And all, but I do enjoy I do enjoy the flavor, and but I like big ring gauge because the, the complexity you get from big ring gauge is hard to match. See, I just disagree with you on that. It's just not my. In the ones that are well blended, 
it's hard to match. Now, those that do big ring gauge just for the sake of big ring gauge, that's fair. It's just a lot of filler. Yeah. But something like this that was made to be put into this size, they blended it right. All right. So, first new cigar. Let's hit a new cigar. General Cigar plans Macanuda Inspirado Brazilian Shade. Now, you and I are both big fans of the Inspirado line, Soup to Nuts. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I like the Inspirado um, Brazilian. And all. I've had a couple of those. And, all. and I like Brazilian tobacco. I've never had Brazilian Shade. I'm interested to see how Brazilian Shade goes. But you do like a shade-grown wrapper just in general also. So, I mean, I feel like this has a lot of stuff going for it that's going to be right in your wheelhouse. I'm the same way. Love Brazilian. I'm not as big a fan of shade-grown wrappers as you are. Uh, but, I mean, looking at this from, um, you know, Dominican, Nicaraguan, and Brazilian tobacco, all all blended by the guys over at Macanudo know what they're doing in this Esperado line. I think this is going to be a winner. Well, so it's interesting. The Connecticut shade wrappers grown in Bahia, Brazil, it's over a Mexican San Andreas binder and four filler tobaccos. Brazilian Matafina, Cubita grown um, Mao, Dominican Republic Pilato Cumiado, and Dominican Republic Jalapa from Jalapa. Dominican Republic and tobacco. Oh, Pilato Cubano from Dominican Republic and tobacco from Jalapa, Nicaragua. There you go. All Second time's a charm. And uh, it's going to come in a 7 by 48, a 6.5 by 52, so good sizing on that. Yeah, and there, there will be other sizes as well. That's just what uh, some people are highlighting at this point. There's apparently going to still be a, f- a further announcement uh, scheduled for next week, so we should learn more about that at that point. Yeah, I, and I'm a fan of the shade wrapper. I like the shade wrapper. This will be usually. It's funny. Usually, your strength is found in your wrapper. Mm-hmm. In this, your strength is going to be found in your binder and your filler. I mean, that San Andreas binder. That's no joke. Right. And I like the idea of using San Andreas as a binder. I feel like being a. I have no. I have no reason to believe this, but in my gut. I'm, I'm thinking kind of sandwiching it between two other tobaccos is going to help meld the flavors you get from it a little bit differently. And I don't know why I'm thinking that. Well, and I think they, this is almost, you know, the um, movies that you can tell they came up with the title for and then made a movie. Mm-hmm. And all you, you, know, you have all those fame, war games, I think, is the most famous example of that. Right. Somebody said, oh, let's name a movie war games. And then they just wrote a script around that. And it turned out to be a pretty good movie. Um, I honestly believe they came up with the recipe of this and put a wrapper on it and said, whoa, that's that's too much. No human being can smoke that. You, and the, you think they retconned the wrapper choice? Yeah, I think they, as they were in the blending, when they passed this one around, they said, okay, the Matafina and the San Andreas together is a lot of strength. We need something to kind of take the edge off. And they we, said, hey, we have some. We need to back this off a bit. Yeah, so I, th- I think it's going to be a really interesting flavor profile. I imagine this is going to have a flavor profile like none other. Yeah, I'd imagine you're probably right. I'm, I'm pretty excited to try that. Um, fire in Honduras destroys Alec Bradley tobacco. Several alcohol, or several, several alcohol, several tobacco curing barns and greenhouses lost in the blaze. So far, it doesn't say, at least I didn't see, what the cause of the fire was. Electrical. Electrical. Okay. Um, This is, I mean, that's huge. I mean, because, you know, we talked about the hurricanes a couple of of months ago and how we weren't really into the the heat of the 
um, you know, the season yet, so everybody was going to be fine. These, I mean, the barns weren't totally chock full yet, but there was enough tobacco lost. And, I mean, those barns are not going to be easy or quick to replace. Especially the price of lumber right now. Right. Well, and so this is my question about this article. If I put Trey in charge of Alec Bradley, we make it Trey Bradley for a couple of weeks. And this is a company at the La Musica Farm that's been providing tobacco for your company for a long time. Now they've lost, let's say, two-thirds of their crop. What do you do? Anything you can. Well, that, that's kind of vague. Well, of course it is, because I don't know the industry from that side well enough to make a, a, a too strong an opinion. I think, I mean, because you wonder, I don't know how much money is going to be a factor. I mean, money can't solve the problem of not having tobacco. Um, but if it's a matter of getting certain, you know, barns rebuilt and plants replanted, that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, you can kind of solve those problems with money. So I think if you have it available, certainly give it. Well, you know, I'm, Jonathan Drew told a story at the Barn Smoker one time, and I've shared it on the podcast before, but I think it bears repeating. One of the fields that Drew Estate buys their tobacco from had a volcanic eruption near it, and it covered the tobacco in soot and ash. So the people there literally took sponges and rags and were washing off the tobacco leaves. So by the time the tobacco got to Drew Estate, it was in a terrible shape. Right. I mean, you just, regardless of how good you are, you can't handle tobacco that much and not damage it. Right. And the buyer came up to Jonathan Drew and he said, how much are we going to pay him for this tobacco? And all, it's obviously subpar. And Jonathan Drew said, you pay him the exact same amount you paid him last year. He said, because five, he said, one, it's the right thing to do. He said, but also five years from now, when that volcanic ash is integrated into that soil and they have that amazing crop of tobacco, they're going to remember who took care of them. Right. And I, plus, good PR. And I think that's, I think Alec Bradley, this is a great opportunity for them. And, you know, nobody's nicer than cigar guys. Great opportunity for Alec Bradley to step up and say, hey, we're going to go ahead and pay you for the whole crop. Right whatever you need, and this is their chance to make somebody that when they have that killer, that golden leaf blooms, saying, hey, we're not going, we're not going to take Alec Bradley to the bank. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think this is a great opportunity. From tragedy comes a great opportunity here as to, for Alec Bradley to really step up. And I'm going to keep track. I want to keep track of this story. I want to see if they ever publish. But it's kind of a tough thing. It is. I mean, because when you think of when you think of you know your livelihood coming out of the ground, there's a lot, and it even says in in the article, you know, the barns were not and could not be insured. I don't know what the insurance laws are like um, in Honduras to know, uh, you know, to know what the what the reasoning behind that is. Um, but it means you know it means there's a certain amount of expectation. You know, it, uh, weather can damage. You hope they're prepared as much as they can be. Uh, but it was more than just the barns, you know. It was greenhouses. It was, I mean, it was It was every step. That it, it wiped them out. So if, the, if we changed the name from Alec Bradley to Shane Bradley for a couple of weeks and I was at the head of this, the, you know the problem I would have? On one hand, you want to say to the public at large, hey, we're paying them for the tobacco. We're going to help them rebuild you want to say that to the public at large because you want people to think that of your company. Right. 
On the other hand, though, you know, the Bible says don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. You shouldn't give charity and then advertise that you gave charity. See, that I have a big, I, I feel, I have very strong feelings on that, on that exact point, and I agree. I think charity is, is best done silently. That being said, you know, it's, I, I don't, even if they did say we're going to pay you the, we're going to pay you the same amount of money we paid you if the crop had, had made it to fruition in its full numbers. Alec Bradley is getting something out of that. So it's not just charity. It's a, it's a business decision to run a loss for future profits. It's a loss leader. And when you're, and when you look at it from that, that standpoint, then yet publicizing it, just make sure that your customers hang on. It, 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 it greases the wheel for when you have to raise prices next year. Because, I mean, you know they're going to. And, and that's not anything against Alec Bradley. It's the fact that all tobacco prices go up every year. That's Or do you, do you milk this? Do you make a charity cigar? Hey, this particular, we're releasing With this. With what tobacco? Well, they, they won't fill this. To, I mean, they're several years ahead. They I won't know. fill this tobacco loss till 25, 26. I know. So do you say, and, and would it be um, disingenuous to do this? to say, hey, we're calling this cigar the La Musica, and all of the proceeds from this cigar sales are going to help to rebuild the La Musica farm. And if you if you wanted to really double down on that, you say, and we'll match. So all the proceeds go, plus out of our operational budget, we'll match every dollar of profit from this cigar, just donated along with it. I think you've hit the nail on the head. This is, this is why you would be my vice president in charge of marketing. All right. And all uh, is... The, you know, you can't just say, oh, we're making the La Musica and all the proceeds are going there because then it looks like you're trying to sell a new line of cigars. Off of the backs of this tragedy. Right, on the backs of a tragedy. But if you say, and we're going to match everything that these cigars make when they're sold, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a delayed compensation at its best. It could change the way the public views Alec Bradley. Especially because, and you see this all the time, anytime a celebrity donates to some tragedy, you know, because we all, you know, we get the Forbes list. We know how much these people are worth. And so when someone donates a million dollars out of their own pocket, there's always that group of people that say, well, why not five? Well, why not 10? Well, why not? So by doing it this way, you kind of sidestep. If they were to say, we're going to cut a check for $5 million, people are going to be like, but they, they're the reason you have that to give. You should be giving 10. No, we're going to match whatever you spent. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to turn it. Because, you know, it always, it always leads me with mixed emotions. Um, I love watching the Mecham auto sales and the Barrett Jackson auto sales. And it always does my heart good. A big charity car will come through and one of the NASCARs will buy it. And then he'll say... I'm donating this car back to the charity, and they'll run it through the auction block again. Yeah, and just double the money, and that always that always fills my heart with joy to see people do that. Yeah, I love seeing stuff. I was reading a story online the other day about a guy who donated to one of his, one of the YouTube streamers. You know, because there are so many, especially kids now, where I mean, it's about like becoming a movie star or a pro athlete. It, it, it's rare, but there are people making some serious money on YouTube as YouTubers. And so kids see that as a viable, possible future income. Anyway, so there's this kid that, um, there was a little streamer, you know, video game kind of blah, blah, blah. And this guy says, you know what? 
He's a kid. He's trying. And I enjoy his content. And he throws him $1,000 as a donation because he had it sitting there. And gets a message back from his mom the next day. And it's like, you don't understand. Like, this is like, he's a kid. But like, you have given him what it takes to keep at this. And he was getting discouraged. But, he, you know, he's just, and just extolling. And how to this guy, that, that amount of money was, was easily just written off as a donation. And it made this kid's world. Well, it was I the love story. stuff like that. Yeah, the story came out last week. Shaq was actually in a jewelry store looking at jewelry and a man come in to buy an engagement ring for his wife or for his fiance, soon to be fiance. And he was asking how much and what were the financing options and all that. And Shaq just walks up and says, I got you, brother. And just buys the ring. That's, yeah, I was having a conversation with my wife the other day. We were talking about kind of what it would look like if we had that kind of money. We were, you know, when we were down in Key West, we were standing next to a, you know, $10 million yacht. And, you know, just kind of talking about the fact that we don't want the kind of money to be able to afford that. We want to have, have friends that have that. But um, but talking about how, what that means to just be able to walk into a jewelry store and do something life-changing for somebody else with no expectation of return. Like, I love that. I, I hope that one day I achieve a level where I can do that for people. Well, and it's, you know, and here, here's what I say to all those people that say, well, why didn't you give $5 million when you gave a million? Kiss my foot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why don't you just go jump in a lake and all? I, I might spend the other $4 million trying to ruin their lives. <laughs> just absolutely. But... We live in, it's funny, we're going to talk about this in the second half of the show, the things that have changed and the principles that remain the same as it pertains to masculinity and how that really works. You know, last night at WrestleMania, um, Logan Paul was in one of the matches. Now, when they said Logan Paul's coming out to be part of this match, I said, who in the blankety blank blank is Logan Paul? He's a YouTube guy. Uh And through his YouTube channel, he's, he got to WrestleMania. Yeah. And all. And it's like, this is such a weird world we live in that somebody that creates content on an esoteric level um, is coming to WrestleMania, his, the showcase of the immortals, the place where only the best wrestlers wrestle their whole life begging for that WrestleMania moment. And some dude that does videos on YouTube... <laughs> gets to come out there and get stunned by Kevin Owens. And, and I realize this is me being a little bit of, hey, kids, get off my porch. But it is it is so weird for me to wrap my head around YouTube celebrity. You know, I remember when YouTube started. and I do, So whenever I see, like, Celebrity Jeopardy, and this guy's a YouTuber, or, you know, Celebrity Dig a Ditch, and, oh, this guy's a YouTuber. And he's got a following of, like, a billion people. It's like, how does that, like, I cannot wrap my head around it. Well, and so this brings us very neatly to our next article. Something else I can't get my head around. Yeah, I, I, hey, somebody out there that understands this, please educate us. Well, no, I understand the concept behind NFTs. I just think it's stupid. So United Cigar launches the first NFT cigar. So, okay, you understand the concept. Explain to me the concept of a non-fungible trade. Okay, so a token. A, a, yeah, an NFT is a non-fungible token. Okay, what is fungible? Am uh, I fungible? Um, 
No. Is no. somebody calling me fungible? So, Should I be offended? So money is fungible. It's something that can easily be exchanged. Currency. Um, or on a barter system, certain goods that have been ascribed a certain value. These have no value other than what someone's willing, willing to pay for them. And in addition to that, they're not even real. That's what drives me so crazy. These are expressly digital items. So it's a block of code. And it's, it's based on the same um, technology as like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So it's based on blockchain technology, which is how you can guarantee that if you pay for this, you're the only one that has it. And so the idea of doing that with a cigar means that it's not actually a cigar. So could you imagine sitting down with Orlando Padron and saying, hey, hey, Dad, our next cigar, we're not even going to make it. Right. We're just going to sell it. We're, we're, so or what leaf are we using? Don't matter. What, what production? Don't matter. <laughs> Here's what I think is so funny about this, though, is because of the fact that they actually do give... That that it's going to be a Ecuadorian Maduro wrapper, and they're like, you know, they're actually making it as if they're calling it a concept cigar, similar to you know every year at the uh, SEMA Auto Show they roll out the concept cars that look awesome, but the production is always a shadow of that, and it, and so they're saying that this is like this is what a cigar could be. This is what it could look like. This is what it could be called. It is so stupid. It, it, and here's the thing. If I was going to produce the NFT Venomous Duck, I would have, like, tobacco grown on the shady side of the moon. Right. And Mars binder and filler. Because <laughs> if you're making it up, make it up. Exactly. <laughs> Rolled in unborn baby duck fur. I don't know. What do you... <laughs> How would you, you know, it just, this blows my mind. But this is a big business. It is. It is picking up steam very fast to the point that even my non-tech-related podcasts are all talking about NFTs because some of them are going for insane amounts of money. Yeah, I mean, WWE sells Undertaker NFTs for $10,000 a pop. Yeah. And some have went much, much higher. I've heard 100000 but I've not seen any proof of it. But Well, and that, and that goes back to the whole crypto-based or blockchain base um, behind the technology with this is that, I mean, it's, you can transfer it. You can trade it just like, you know, and if you thought Bitcoin value was volatile, wait till you see what some of this stuff does. Well, not only that, we actually had a man bought one of my builder's houses with Bitcoin. And it was like a $550,000 house. But we almost had to throw him out of the house because he had, couldn't sell off enough Bitcoin. It happened that his closing date was at a point when the Bitcoin was low. Yeah. And he ended up selling off, you know, $2 million worth of Bitcoin to try to get this $550,000 together. And uh, so um, really, uh, the, to me, this is old man shame because this makes no sense to me. This seems like the stupidest thing. If I put one penny into NFT or Bitcoin, I would feel like an idiot forever even at this point especially at this point because it's 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 only go, this this whole bitcoin um scam is going to go down in history as the monopoly board the stack of dominoes that all falls down on people's heads uh, i disagree um and i've been around and keeping my eye on this for a long time bitcoin's here to stay now dogecoin and um, Blockcoin and some of those that 
just kind of got started when they saw what was happening with Bitcoin, those will go away. But Bitcoin's not going anywhere. And it's, and it's gonna go. It, it'll and because it's it's just like trading currency, like yen or the British pound or the euro, and so you can trade against it. And yes, it makes it very volatile. But it's it's no more um, it's no more fake currency than the U.S. dollar. Oh yeah, it is. It it, it hey, isn't. I tell you what, go across the street, try to buy a loaf of bread with Bitcoin. Well, that's just because of accepted. Go go down to Collinwood and try to buy you half a cow and pay the dude in Bitcoin. He'll shoot you. No, you're talking. Yeah, but you're talking about accepted usage, and I think we will get. I mean, there's already. I think it was actually an art installation. I don't think it was actually real, but there there exists a Bitcoin ATM um, where you can turn your Bitcoin into U.S. dollars. Just because someone won't accept Bitcoin as a form of payment doesn't doesn't nullify its value, because you know our U.S. dollar is not based on anything anymore. If we need more money, they just start printing it. It doesn't matter. If all of us decided to go to the bank tomorrow and withdraw everything from our deposit accounts, they wouldn't be able to do that because money's not real. Bitcoin's but, no different. No, but the history behind money is real. Okay, so you're... The provenance of money is real. Bitcoin has no provenance. Yeah, but yet. But even the U.S. dollar had to start somewhere. Okay, everybody. So mark this on your calendar. On April 12th, Shane said the Bitcoin thing will collapse. And 40 podcasts later, when I do the article, Bitcoin collapses. People lose fortunes. I didn't say that wouldn't happen. I said it wouldn't go away. It will collapse. And once it collapses, it'll have to go away. No. Are you kidding? It, when it collapses, that's when I'm buying. I, 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 the thing is that we're finally getting to the point where people are trying to, because of the virtual world, they're trying to blur the lines between reality and theoretical. And I don't think that you can blur those lines. You know, I tell everybody, I told a customer today, they came in, they told me what they wanted, and I told them, this is what I can do, but we must do business with the laws of physics. You can't have these size bedrooms and this square foot of home. Right. So the at the end of the day, you must, they're called laws of physics for a reason, and Bitcoin and non-fungible trades do not comply to the laws of physics. And people... Well, they apply to the laws of physics, they just don't apply to what you're used to. Again, I still think NFTs are stupid. I want to go on record multiple times saying that anybody who would pay $10,000 for a digital photo or or a digital uh, just line of code is an idiot. But I do think that cryptocurrencies are going to be around for a long time. We'll see. I, I think it's going to collapse. I don't think it's going to hold up. But anyway... All right, we're going to step away, take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about an upscale cigar bar. You know, every week there's probably 20 of these cigar bar launches in so-and-sos that I pass on. Mm-hmm. But this is one I do want to talk about. I'm really excited to talk about this. So we'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane, sitting across from a man who was once kidnapped by mimes. They did unspeakable things to him, Mr. Trey Dedman. 
I like that. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I thought that one was cute. And I'll upscale. Oh, well, hold on. Give me an update on the um, whichever punch Chinese you're smoking. Um, it's really good. Is it the General Tso's? No, <laughs> Kung Pao. Kung Pao. It's, it's a, close it's, enough. The, the General So is by far the most, I think that's the most popular Chinese dish in America, ain't it? The General yes. So chicken? Yeah, and it's American. Yeah, yeah. there never was a General So. Right. <laughs> and, it, and, and the actual dish came to exist in New York's Chinatown. Well, okay, then can it not be considered Chinese if it came to exist in Chinatown? No, because it came to exist because of the, if you want to learn about a culture, the best way to do it is through their food. And it's always interesting because when a, when a culture moves to a new country and sort of sets up roots there in any sort of numbers, the first thing they do is, is bring their food. But oftentimes, and it's the same reason we associate um, corned beef and cabbage with St. Patrick's Day. Has, uh, Irish people don't ever don't eat that. Corned beef would be too expensive. Cabbage wasn't part of their regular diet. It was the corned beef they got from the Jews who were their neighbors in the neighborhoods in New York City. Same thing here. Um, it's the availability of certain certain foods that they had here that they modified existing dishes and, and kind of put their flavors and spices on it. But it's a 100% American dish. Interesting. Upscale cigar bar. <laughs> I'm brushing you off. Uh-huh. Charlotte, North Carolina, Havana Smoke and Reserve Social Club and Novelty House Rooftop are targeting a mid-May de- debut. So the Rooftop Cigar Bar. Why do we not hear more about this? That's a good question. I think rooftop bars have maybe become a little passe. It's not as big a deal as it was maybe 15, 20 years ago. But one of the things I love about this is the layout. It looks like a restaurant. It does. It looks like a restaurant. It's on a rooftop. They've got. It's very well anointed. And all is that the proper word? Sure. Why not? Um, very well laid out. Very cool. And definitely wonder why there's not more rooftop cigar bars in our country. Because every every cigar lounge we know has a roof. <laughs> why, why are we not up there smoking on them? No. Well, but as you pointed out when I was talking about uh, some some principles of remodel. There's a difference between ceiling joists and floor joists, and not every roof can accommodate a pool or a bar or a... By and large, commercially, they can't. Agreed. By and large, commercially, that's a, that's a very possible thing to do. But, um, yeah, so rooftop cigar bars. I, when I create my cigar lounge, I do think a rooftop area. Now, I would like it to be sort of exclusive. I don't want the common Joe to come be able to buy a quorum and go up there and sit and smoke. And all I do think it should be a members-only type affair. But I really like this idea. I do, too. And I think also part of it comes from the fact that, you know, this is in Charlotte. So it gets pretty warm in the summer, about like it does here. Um, But they get a little bit more from a winter standpoint than we do. So I think that, I mean, the, the areas in the country where you could have a rooftop bar and it be able to be open any day of the year that you want it to. I mean, you've got Miami, and even then you still have to have a real roof because it rains every day. Um, You've got Southern California. That's about it. I mean, you got Hawaii and the Keys also, maybe? You'd have to run the numbers. And Okay, how many drunks a year fall off of rooftop bars in Nashville? I don't seem like I hear about it as often as I thought I would. Do no. they keep that quiet? I think I, I, they either keep that quiet or they keep a couple of bouncers up there just to make sure. Just, just to keep the drunks away from the edges. Yeah, 
and all. That's a, that's a tough gig. But Bouncer, the iconic Bouncer, and all. How, you know, Roadhouse, the most famous Bouncer movie in history. True. Featuring Sam Elliott, the epity, epitome of masculinity. Is there anybody more masculine than Sam Elliott that's still alive? Now, obviously, I think the gold standard for masculinity has to be John Wayne. Um, I was going to say The Rock. The Rock's a good one. Of, of alive people, it would be a close rush between The Rock and Sam Elliott. I think you give Sam Elliott the edge based on age. Uh, yeah, I think when The Rock is Sam Elliott's age, it'll absolutely without a question. Yeah, it'll probably be there, and I'll we'll, we'll probably by, actually by the time The Rock is Sam Elliott's age, we will probably say our president, Rocky John, <laughs> you know, Dwayne Johnson. Um, we'll probably we'll probably see him up there at some point. But this brings us to our topic, and also okay, here's what brings this topic up. And all as I was watching you, or watching um, WrestleMania last night, I was thinking about what a bastion of masculinity WrestleMania is. It's men doing battle. It's gladiatorial combat. It's a bit homoerotic. No, no, no. That's all in how you watch it. Not that that flies in the face of masculinity. But it's it's. These men have worked 20, 25 years to get to this point. You know, it's funny. People see, oh, yeah, did you see the newest guy on the WWE roster? The newest guy on the WWE roster has been wrestling in bingo halls and recreation centers for 15 <laughs> That's years. That's a bingo hall I want to go to. Oh, ECW was famous. ECW, the whole promotion was famous for being a bingo hall in South Philadelphia. Oh, that's funny. And uh, And so I got to thinking about what shaped my masculinity as a child and all and so i pulled up 70 colognes ads so if you go to me tv nashville and all and you pull up the vintage men's cologne ads from the 60s and 70s i want to be the nsa agent assigned to your house just uh, <laughs> just to roll through that search history man it, it, it's wild <laughs> it's wild but i love this number one brute now, is that not a scent? Because, you know, okay, how often do we talk about how important the name of a cigar is as it pertains to the cigar selling? Right. And uh, we've always, you know, I've always famously said La Serena has trouble selling cigars because they're not really selling masculine cigars. The Mermaid, the Porthole, the, you know, all of these other are not very masculine names. But I don't think you have to be masculine inherently to sell cigars. I would say if you look at just if you look at the numbers, how many more masculine cigar names sell than now? Granted, there's more masculine cigar names than there are. Yeah, less so you have masculine. to break it down by percentage. Yeah, but I would say your people that really sell, you know, the Southern Draw, um, Rose of Sharon, excellent example, excellent cigar. Try to get somebody to buy a Rose of Sharon when they see that light pink wrapper. They instantly assume that it's going to be a really light cigar, really mild. I know I've tried to sell people Rosa Sharon before. Yeah, but that's you're talking about unconscious bias now. And that's a that's a different topic altogether. I think that's conscious bias. Well, it, no. It's a light wrapper with a pink wrapper. How's a, you know, how is this going to be a how is this going to be the cigar that stands up to what Shane says it's going to? Yeah, but you're framing it in the capacity of it of it being masculine or feminine and I you know, and I don't think 
I don't think inherently people are outright thinking, well, this is going to make me look like a woman if I smoke a pink-banded cigar. But that's kind of what you're saying that that's happening. That's no, why I, I say it's unconscious I bias. think at the moment of purchase, they have different expectations of a pink band than they do of a, you know, gold inlaid leaf black band. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I still think that falls under unconscious bias, though. Number one, brute. And the, the, the picture on this, this guy's wearing... The, a weird steel eye patch. Would a steel eye patch work? I don't think that steel. I don't think it would. And on a metal chain as well. The next one, Mandum. <laughs> now, this, this is the single entendre, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> Charles Bronson. And they've got the picture of him in the classic hitman get up, and then they have him, obviously, when he's relaxing with his pipe. All right. <laughs> no. I, you know, I've seen a lot of Charles Bronson movies. I've never thought I'd like to smell like Charles Bronson. Isn't it funny? Look, and, and this is obviously what you're getting at. Isn't it funny? Look at like, so the, the brute ad, I can see someone putting that in a, maybe a little bit different haircut, but I could see that being in that ad in a magazine today. The fact that we thought Charles Bronson was the pinnacle of manhood in the seventies, I find fascinating. But it's it's pretty fascinating. Well, Charles Bronson was not the pinnacle of manhood in the 70s. Look at number five, Jovan's Sex Appeal, An, another single entendre. And who's on the label? Conan. Stand, standing with, holding his sword amongst a, a pile of fallen enemies. Now that you have acquired the power, my son, you must... Swear to me by the sacred sword of Jovan <laughs> that you will use the power only for good. So they're saying, okay, this this cologne is so potent that you'll be fighting them off with a sword. Right, that you that you'll be beating the ladies off with a sword, and and you must not take advantage of the emo chick with daddy issues. You must really work your way through and only use your powers for good. You were so close. <laughs> And uh, I'm just I'm, uh, astonished looking at these 70s ads. I mean, ginseng actually has a, a couple in flagrant delecto on the wrapper. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, but now, men are easy to market to. <laughs> so this is what I think is so funny about, about the, the fragrance ads in general is because I don't, like, if you've ever known anybody who was sort of known for the fact that they always wore cologne or perfume. They're never the kind of person that I assume is is projecting the image they think they are when they do that. Well, and it's a it's also kind of keyed into so cologne smells like nothing that occurs naturally. Exactly. I've never worn cologne. If I don't it does not appeal to me. I don't understand how it could possibly appeal to anybody else. If we were making the Shane cologne, it would smell like grease, fresh turned dirt and sawdust. Mm-hmm. Cuz that's what when I go out on a construction site and I smell that bouquet of sawdust and fresh turned earth and grease from the big heavy machines. It just absolutely takes me back to my childhood. It does, but does that make you... <laughs> it, it's difficult to talk about this with the parameters for language we've set up around this show. Um, but I don't think anyone who you would want to have after-dinner affairs with is going to be attracted to those smells. No. That's all for you. No, I don't, but... Is that not the basis of tattoos, colognes, piercings, 
um, clothing. It's not really, it's kind of like the lingerie. The lingerie thing is not about what does the man think a woman looks sexy in lingerie. It's because the woman feels sexy when she's wearing lingerie. I don't know. I think I think you also get into sort of societal expectations when you start going down that road. I just I'm looking down at these, and you see most of the most of these ads are pictures of half naked men, and that's, that's what I think is so funny about the way that they're mar- they're marketing this uh, as increase your sex appeal. Now here's a picture of a sexy man. Like what? Well, because you want to be that guy. Yeah. And I'll, they, they, if they, it would be a little, which it's impossible to say any of these ads could be a little too on the nose because they're all on the nose. Macho Musk is the one that's just cracking me up. Uh, but my favorite all-time cologne of this era is high karate. Yeah. And I'll, they, hey, what do we need to call this cologne, Bill? Karate. Uh, high karate. All right. You've got a winner, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, did, did Menon make it? And I, I love the Musk by English Leather, where the guy's actually half man, half lion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll have to show this to my wife and see if any of these things would inspire her to, to, think, to think a masculine thoughts. It's, it's <laughs> hilarious to, to look at these ads. But this brings us kind of to a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I, and I always enjoy this topic for two reasons. One, because I think it's tremendously fascinating, and two, because it makes you uncomfortable. It doesn't make me uncomfortable. Your ideas around the topic make me uncomfortable, but the topic th- of masculinity itself doesn't. I think we are living in a current crisis of masculinity. See, I disagree. Okay, describe to me, because I'm obviously not the modern man, nor will I ever become the modern man. What is the definition of masculinity of the modern man? See, I was thinking about this today when you, when you text me about this topic. And the, the modern man is not caught up in what society tells him masculine or feminine is. I don't care if you like sports, rugby, trucks, hunting, fishing, or fashion, or sewing, or cooking, or, or whatever. I don't care. It, it does, that doesn't matter. Those things that are considered stereotypically masculine or feminine, those don't matter. What matters is having the confidence to go through life, liking what you like, not apologizing for it, and being good to people. That's all that matters. But is it not a breakdown of masculinity? Because what I'm getting from what you just said is masculinity is not caring if you're a man or not. It is. Because it, because there's nothing... Because this this whole idea of, of masculine... It just... It doesn't... Number one, it doesn't matter. You know, it's kind of like we talk about the people that call themselves alphas. Every, anybody who's ever called himself an alpha is not, or he wouldn't care. Self-made men don't call themselves that, or, the, or they... Because they just because a true self-made man do, doesn't burden himself with that train of thought, masculinity is the same way. See, um, the basic the thing is, if you look at the state of masculinity, of the number of thirty-year-old men that are still living with their parents in this country, the number of children growing up without fathers in this country. Well, those and are the, two very different. Things. No, it's all the erosion of masculinity. It's the guy that didn't say, 
okay, I have a girlfriend who is not, you know, I, I know a guy who got his girlfriend pregnant and they lived together in their mother's basement. I would be so embarrassed to tell anybody that I ever knew that story. And I would too, that but would I don't think that, that me. yeah, I, I mean, that would, I mean, I, I can understand that, but again, I don't, I don't think that has any bearing on how much of a man that guy is. Oh, I think it entirely does. Cause a man stands up and does whatever needs to be done to make his spot in the world. So all the millions of women who go through life the exact same way, they're, they're men? They, they embody some of the better qualities of masculinity, and I think you see a lot of this. You know, um, there was a very interesting Prager you about children, about girls wanting to become boys, and the amount of how that number has risen so vastly in the past couple of years. Well, that's because our society so so rewards masculinity over femininity, regardless of whether you're male or female. But the masculine man does not does not belittle femininity. No, in a in a perfect world, yes, you're right. Well, the men that I know that you know the most masculine men I know around here. And, I'll, and let's face it, cigars are a bastion of masculinity. There is, you know, there's a reason why these cologne ads have a guy with a cigar in his mouth. There's a, re, you know, there's a reason why the guy wearing the weird eye patch has a cigar in his mouth. Now, it's a machine-made cheap cigar, but it's still a cigar in his <laughs> mouth. There's a reason why George Papard in the A-Team always lit a cigar right when he was getting ready to let the boom down on some bad guy. You know, some guy that was trying to force union truckers out of business. Um, there is a bastion of masculinity in cigars. So when I'm in the cigar shop and I come across the most masculine men I know, they are also men who treat their wives so well. Well, yeah. And all. So the two things, so to say that masculinity somehow, equality is not sameness. No, no, no. I'm not suggesting that it is. I'm saying that if you look at the way society treats women versus the way society treats effeminate men versus the way society treats, and I don't like this term, but butch women, and the way society treats masculine men, pretty much in that order is from least acceptance to most acceptance. No, I don't believe so. I believe, you know, women have unparalleled opportunity to do anything they want to. Yeah, but the, women have never had as much opportunity as they have right now. The, the, I won't argue with that point, but that doesn't mean that there's equality. Equality. No, there is equality. There's just not sameness. No, there's not equality yet. My wife and I are very equal, but we're not the same. We yeah, have but, very equal equal roles in our life, but they're not the same. Yeah, roles. but you're talking very micro scale. I'm talking macro scale. Well, I'm talking macro. I look, at, you know, I look all the time. You know, it, it doesn't matter to me. Of course. Very little matters to me. Very little hits me on an emotional level. Um, you probably get to see more hit me on an emotional level than anybody, and all because it, of the. And that's one of the. You know, we talk about the good things about Shane a lot, and I don't think we spend enough time thinking talking about the good things about Trey. You do make a person very comfortable to say anything to you. That's one of your great qualities. That's one of the things that I really respect about you. I appreciate that. Is that you? You do have that effect on people, and. The the amount the good masculinity that I see, the men that I see that are good masculine men, which is the vast majority of them, are they treat their wives well, they treat their wives as equals. Now, they don't treat their wives as sameness. 
No, but I also don't think... Let's go back more to sort of the core point, because I think we've kind of derailed a little bit. Because you brought up something that I want to that I want to touch on is the fact that um, is that whole sameness idea, and you brought up um, you brought up uh, uh, children being raised without without father figures, or or men in their life, or, or in particular in this case, masculine men in their life. At the same time, though. Um, any, any, find me a family that will hire a man to be a nanny. You know, men who want to raise kids, want to be stay-at-home dads, want to be nannies or, or even uh, not so much anymore, but, but recently nurses, it, things are, are ridiculed and, and, and seen as predators. Go across the country, though. And find me an all-female framing crew. But is there, but is there anything inherently wrong or emasculine about raising kids? No, not a thing. But but that's so so. But our our outdated stereotypes of what masculinity are is that the man is the hunter. He leaves the nest and he goes and and forages and fights and brings home what he kills. But. The idea of uh, the modern idea of masculinity does not get caught up in those things. It doesn't matter who the breadwinner is. It doesn't matter who raises the kids. I think being there for your family, kind of what you were talking about uh, about treating your wife well. I think being there for your family in whatever capacity. I think that's incredibly masculine. And there are a lot of people out there that would say a stay-at-home dad is not a masculine man. And I can understand that. And I and I'll admit, I have my biases. And I'll, when I see the lady driving, that bothers me. That makes me think less of the guy, unless he has a physical handicap that says he can't drive. If he pulls up here to the cigar shop and his wife gets out and she was driving, it bothers me. You I will know, say I, that is that is the old man shame. And, and I will fully admit, you know, uh, I, I tend to be the one that drives. And, and, and I don't know how much of that is because of the fact that I just like driving. I like, I don't know if it's a control thing or whatever. I just, I like to be the person who drives. But also, I grew up in a family where if both of my parents were in the car, my dad was behind the wheel. So some of that's learned behavior, and I think some of that that bias uh, that you're talking about comes from that learned behavior. But I don't think there's inherently wrong with at hour 10 of the road trip letting your wife sit behind the wheel so that you can catch a quick 30 minutes. No, and I don't believe there is either. I don't believe there's any problem whatsoever with that. And I'll, but, but, it, when you see the, but when you see the woman driving down the road with the guy in the passenger seat, you don't immediately go to, I bet they've been on the road a while. No, when I, when I see them on the interstate, it don't, I don't think twice about it. Okay, it's her turn to drive, big deal. It's when I see the woman that's driving the, the short jaunt from her home to the cigar lounge. And they get out and all. And it's, it's interesting how some of, this, some of this is down in our DNA. There is a certain amount of this that I think is built down into our DNA. But how much, so now that we've defined the, ma- the mas- modern masculinity, the basis of masculinity, if you go to the most primal basis of masculinity, is to me the desire to go out and kill it and drag it in. That is the most basic level of masculinity. You know, when you see the guy that has been successful, and all. Now, he wasn't successful by himself. He had a wife. He had a kid. He had whatever. He had people help him to become successful. But you still see that image. 
And, I, you know, I, I was talking about this before you got here tonight. Me and a couple of guys at the bar were having this discussion. I still believe the three things that a man needs in life have not changed regardless from day one till the end of time. I don't think these three things that define a man change. A man needs three things to be happy in life. He needs a God to follow, a woman to love, and a work to do. I believe those three things will never change. And uh, and if you look at the people you know in life that are happy, that are successful, they have usually ensconced themselves pretty firmly in those three principles. While that's true, I don't think it's inherently masculine. Because I would challenge you to say that that's true for anybody. You know, a, a God to follow, a person to love, and a job to do. You're talking about fulfillment in, in various stages of life. That can apply to men, uh, children, you know, if studies being the, the nature of your work at that age. Um, it, women, men, it doesn't matter. And, I can agree and with whether, that. And, and, you know, whether you happen to prefer company of the same gender or the opposite gender, I don't think that matters one bit. I think I think love is is you know having having companionship is is very very important. But I think yeah I I don't think that's inherently masculine. The you know and this is a conversation we'll have to have after the podcast. And I because I do think I know more unhappy people that don't have those three principles nailed down in their life than I do happy people. Yeah. And I still believe at the end of the day it comes down to that. Whether it is the over-the-top masculine guy, and there's nothing worse than the guy that is over-the-top. Y'all were talking about him before we got on the podcast. Right. That feels the need to work out and maintain 3% body fat. That Always def- goes in for the killer grip handshake. Oh, yeah, that has that. That guy's annoying. And so is the guy that's, you know, obsessed with the MMA. And all there, there's a deep well of violence in that person that I really wonder about, <laughs> that I kind of which I'm not an MMA fan. And uh, I'm not an MMA fan. I think as a human beings, we've evolved past that stage in life. <laughs> we and were talking I'll, about that before the show, too. It, it's a reason that I, pre- that I prefer wrestling over MMA, because I like the story. Right. I watch wrestling because I enjoy the story. I enjoy seeing, you know, the, the Daniel Bryan, you know, one of the most um, emotional moments in the history of wrestling was Daniel Bryan had toiled for 20 years, and at WrestleMania, when he won the world title, he got out of the ring and went and picked up the young man that was dying of cancer, the child that was dying of cancer, and brought him in the ring to celebrate his title win at WrestleMania. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of the pinnacle. And he had let that kid beat him in the ring before earlier that day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they had really, you know, the WWE treated him as Connor, and they actually named a, the Warrior Award is actually named after Connor. And I was named after the Ultimate Warrior, but Connor the Crusher was the, the first Warrior Award recipient. And that's kind of, I don't think, I think too often in our modern society, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater as it pertains to masculinity. Yeah. I get your point. I do. I don't necessarily agree with it because I think, and and I've been trying to to avoid using the term. And, and but there is definitely a level at which masculinity for masculinity's sake is a problem. Um, but I also think the pinnacle of it, it, you know, like we were just talking about with the the three things you need, 
the pinnacle of what makes a man a good man is the same thing that makes a person a good person. And I, I think it's, it's lifting humanity up. Well, and the, th- the same thing can be said. The radical diehard feminist is just as bad as the, the and I'll go ahead and say it, the toxic masculine. I you can say, get away with saying it. I'm going to get a massive eye roll if I say it. Well, I, th- I think the radical feminist is just as bad as the guy that crushes your hand. I tend to believe that the radical anything is, is just as bad as the thing that they fight against. Yeah, the, the, there the there ends are of exceptions the spe- to that, sure, but... The ends of the spectrum are closer together. It's a circle. Exactly. The ends of the spectrum are, as, as we find out so often in these conversations, either end of the spectrum is closer to the other than you probably would like. Yeah. And all. So, all right. So tell me about it. Tell me about your cigar. Give me a rating. This is, this is workhorse all day long. This is exactly what you want from it. It changes flavors about... It, when you get into the back third, it changes. You get a bit more bite in the mouth. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I gave it a rating of 5.75 when I posted about it on social media, and I'm going to say, I'm going to stand by that. I think it's still right there. So this is interesting. Rating this cigar is an interesting experience for me. This is one of the things that I enjoy the most about the podcast is when I kind of have to to go deeper than the surface and grow. For me, this cigar is a six all day long. But I would say I'm in the minority of people for whom this cigar would be a six. Right. And I have to knock the cigar down to a five and a half just on the basis of mass appeal. You know, if you're, if you're taking all the factors of cigars into account, you have to consider mass appeal. And this, you know, the five and a half by 80 is not going to appeal to the masses. No, I'm not going to enjoy that cigar. Yeah. So I do have to, ta- to tack down the rating a little bit. The tobacco is excellent. The construction is excellent. It has burned evenly. Which, for a cigar that size, is a real testament. Yeah, it has burned evenly. It's been a little hard to manipulate. That's why I can't get it above a six, is it is still hard to manipulate. I stuck it a little early just because it's easier to hold on to my pick than to hold on to the cigar and try to adjust my iPad and my microphone at the same time. But definitely a solid stick. The JFR Lunatic Loco, solid stick. Absolutely wonderful. Well, how do they get a hold of us, Trey? You can reach us at Facebook.com slash The Cigarcast, Instagram and Twitter at The Cigarcast, and email info at TheCigarCast.com. So if you've got comments on our talk tonight, by the way, thank you to the listener that emailed me about the device to get the auto start off my truck. And all, I did get that, and that Trey sent that to me. I appreciate it. The, the audience participation always makes me so happy. Oh, me too. And I'll... But if you have your views on the masculinity, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to hear some other ideals and some other concepts come into this. And I will thank you, everybody, for listening this week. Until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us.